you go for the big ones, you know, the NHL, um, FIFA, for arguably the, one of the largest <laughs> governing bodies in the world. We just see the number of people who play soccer or, you know, football respectively in other countries, World Rugby, the International Olympic Committee, you know, all very big governing bodies that are not acknowledging the causal link. This is Skip Perrin from the marketing program at Suffolk University in Boston. Welcome to another edition of the Sawyer Business School Amplification Avenue podcast, where we talk about the amplifying properties of sports and the convergence of sports, business, the media, and society. Today, the podcast is going to go full Shark Tank, or I guess more specifically, we're going to do a Shark Tank update, so to speak, because in the very first podcast interview that I did a, a little bit over a year ago, we talked with the Concussion Legacy Foundation regarding their PSA campaign featuring Brett Favre about um, playing flag football up until I think the age of 13. And uh, the Concussion Legacy Foundation has a great list of amazing football players who didn't start playing football until high school. Tom Brady is on that list. Walter Payton is on that list. Lawrence Taylor, I think, is on that list. So uh, they've advocated that from a a contact standpoint, as it relates to football, you don't need to start playing contact until you get into high school. And it is interesting to note, and Sam, I don't have this on my list of questions, but we may talk about it. The NFL is really pushing flag football as a way, as an Olympic sport and into the world championship. So they're really investing in that. And I think there's a growth opportunity for them as well, because football is expensive to play. And I don't believe it'll ever be played globally, but flag football could, and they could own that brand. Uh, in any case, uh, the Concussion Legacy Foundation broke news this week, and they're urging some of the biggest leagues and governing bodies in the, on the globe, in, the, in global sports, to step up and acknowledge the causal relationship between repetitive head impact and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, commonly known as CTE. Uh, joining us today is uh, Samantha Bureau, the Director of Programs at the Concussion Legacy Foundation. She holds a PhD and she is co-author of a newly published article in the frontiers of neurology. I hope that have that right entitled applying the Bradford Hill criteria for causation to repetitive head impacts and CTE. Sam, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Let's just jump right in here. The headline of the study says head impacts are the definitive cause of CTE. Is this new research that, um, the foundation is doing an affiliation with BU, or is this an analysis of existing data? So what we did is we took basically a ton of literature that's been done over the past hundred years. So I think we cited over 160 existing papers, but what we did is we really broke it down into this epidemiological framework that was used actually to strengthen the argument for smoking and lung cancer. Um, so you think about that argument, you know, now we know, of course, smoking is a cause of lung cancer. Um, and we want to take this framework to basically counter the argument that we keep hearing that there's not enough evidence to date to say that repetitive head impacts cause CTE. And when we actually use this framework, we found with resounding confidence that across all nine of these criterion that are included in the framework, we are seeing that 
they are met and they're met with resounding evidence. Um, there is some new analysis in the paper in the strength of association section where we took some studies that had been done um, at BU and other brain banks and they just had not done certain statistics. So we mm -hmm. took from the data that was in their paper and ran those statistics to strengthen what we were saying. But the majority of what's done in this paper is really saying, hey, we've had this evidence for a long time and here's a new way to look at it. Okay. So for the non-scientist of which I am, uh, I am one, can you tell us what the Bradford Hill criteria is? I know it's, it's nine uh, elements, if that's the right word, but can you break it down uh, or simplify it for us? Yeah, of course. So it's nine separate elements. We're looking at if we can see evidence that meets any of these criteria. And of course, it's not a checklist. It's not, you need to hit all nine for there to be causation. When they were looking at smoking and lung cancer, they actually only hit about six of nine at the time. And of course, research techniques are evolving, you know, the funding, all of these things, which changes how we can look at evidence. But really what it is, is this beautiful framework where we can say, hey, like if we have this exposure and this disease, are they correlated and how strong is that association? So the first section, which a lot of people regard, it's kind of like the bread and butter of this analysis is called mm -hmm. strength of association. And it's really looking at how strong is the link between the exposure. So in our case, repetitive head impacts, and then the outcome, which would be CTE. And that is a section of the paper where I think headlines really picked up on, you know, three studies, are three different bank ranks for showing, you know, 68 times more likely for contact sport athletes versus non-contact sport athletes to develop CTE. So really showing how strong that is. And for mm -hmm. reference, anything above two is typically considered very strong. Yeah. Um, so to have, you know, 68 is outstanding. Um, and mm -hmm. then we have other things. So looking at, is it seen in other places? So is it consistently found um, is there coherence between the argument? Like, does it actually make sense what we're trying to say? Is it plausible that this could be happening? Are there experiments? Um, can you make an analogy about it? Is there a temporal relationship? So all of these different factors come into play. Um, and that is basically how you are looking at the evidence critically to see if it does meet, you know, the, these basic needs to say, hey, maybe we should be looking at this as a causal effect as opposed right, to right. just an association. So 68 times, that's, that's a huge number. Uh, so in a sense, if, if, if there wasn't an environment um, that created the incidences of head contact, um, you wouldn't see uh, the, the rise in CTE. Is, is that correct? Am I saying that correctly? So these, these, there are contact sports that create an environment that leads to you know, 68 times more, you know, more like an increased likelihood of CTE. Yeah, in our opinion, CT is entirely preventable. Um, not every neurodegenerative disease is. You know, a lot of my work beforehand was, you know, in other diseases, and we're not so fortunate with those to be able to say we have such a strong association with one factor where if we were to remove that, um, it's very likely you could prevent the vast majority of cases. Of course, there's always going to be other factors that maybe put someone at increased risk of amplification for the disease. Mm -hmm. But right now, repetitive head impacts is the only thing in the literature that has shown true causation to, you know, lead to CTE. So why not just remove, you know, that risk? And it's not forever. You know, we're not saying 
don't play these sports. Let's just play them right. safer. Let's have kids playing these sports at an older age or modify them for younger age groups. So you're reducing their overall exposure through life to hopefully really decrease the likelihood that they will get this devastating disease. Yeah, that's an important note. And, and if you go back, if, if our listeners go back and listen to my initial conversation uh, regarding the PSA campaign and Brett Favre, um, the last question I asked was, you know, the, the criticism of the Concussion Legacy Foundation is you're going, you're trying to kill sports, you're trying to kill contact sports. And I know that's not the case. Um, you're actually trying to make these sports safer and for people to be able to play them longer. So let's define what is a contact sport or what are the sports that you view as creating an environment um, that, you know, creates, you know, head impact um, and perhaps can be shifted to a, you know, touch flag version, early stages, no, no headers, et cetera. What are these contact sports that you're looking at? Yeah, so we really look at things like contact and collision. And of course, you know, the light, like the chances that it's happening in a game. So if you think of a game like, you know, football or something like boxing and MMA, you're like, of course, that's contact and collision. That is part of the game. So these are sports immediately that fall into that bucket. But, you know, then there's sports like soccer where, you know, most people consider soccer non-contact sport. But when you think about the repetitive collisions heading a soccer ball, then this now falls into that high risk category. So any sport where you're really having that repetitive incidence of these impacts is generally those that are at higher risk for developing CTE. So we have found that number of concussions doesn't necessarily correlate with CTE. It's your total you know, burden of impact. So someone like a hockey player, you know, maybe they're not getting concussed after a check, but if they're sustaining body checks, open ice collisions over and over again, then their risk is going up. Um, right. So you think about sports like rugby, Australian rules, football, you know, Canadian football, American football, hockey, all these sports fall into that broader category of contact and collision. Um, and then something like basketball, you do have some collisions, but it's not necessarily considered one of those high risk contact collision sports because that's not really the you know imperative part of the game right, if that right. makes sense yeah it's not predicated on contact and you know and i've i've i followed this for for quite a long time um i have a teenage son who i said you know no football until high school but the trade off and and i don't know if it was a real trade off is i you know he played rugby which started as flag rugby but at middle school went to tackle it's a different type of tackling um, you know, hits above the head or above the, the shoulders are prohibited. But the reality is that rugby, you know, rugby has a, certainly there's lots of contact. And, and I think it, we'll get to this in a second. Um, they're not one of those organ or sports or the governing bodies are not one of those who are ready to acknowledge um, the causal relationship. And that's a big part. That's what I want to spend the majority of time here because this public this podcast is called the Amplification Avenue podcast because I believe in the amplifying properties of sports. And this is an issue that's obviously germane to many sports. And there are powerful voices, amplified voices who can raise awareness. And if it present if it prevents, you know, young kids from developing CTE later in life, then that's what I think you know we should be looking at. And I know what you're looking at. Let me read you a quote here. Uh, this is from uh, I think it's from it's from the release authors are concerned the authors are concerned parents and coaches who have the most control over whether children are exposed to repetitive head impacts are not getting the facts from global sports organizations and are exposing their children to preventable cases of CTE. This this is, may seem like a non sequitur, but is this of greater concern 
for uh, kids in, in low-income areas who uh, maybe see sports as a way out and are getting into football early and specializing because it's an opportunity to get a college scholarship um, and maybe their parents aren't as media savvy, aren't seeing this report. So is this of concern at all for um, folks at lower income levels? Yeah, I think you have to always think about, you know, the inequalities that we see in sport and in the diversity of, you know, the United States and Canada, not everyone has equal access. Um, right now, I think we're still at the point where everyone is kind of in the same boat. Like we'll talk to people who very educated, a lot of access, a lot of privilege, and they are still of the belief that tackle football is the only way to go and that removing tackling from the game um, is a huge disservice. Or if their child were not to play football, they wouldn't gain necessarily life skills and that you can't you know, gain anywhere else in their mind. So I think we're still at that point where there's just such a love for some of these sports that people are really reluctant to the change. And I mean, of course, we are continuing to try and do research with, you know, minority groups, uh, people of color to see if there are effects in terms of risk factors, because we know for a ton of other diseases, um, things like race, ethnicity, gender are all, you know, factors that can change how diseases present in people. And it's very important for us to continue to do that research, but also understanding that these populations have not necessarily been treated well in the research community in the past. So it's also our responsibility as researchers and, you know, just citizens to make sure that we are reaching out and helping them and making them understand that we are here to help you. And this is why we're doing it. And, but also acknowledging what had happened to them that would have never happened to someone like myself or my parents um, when that research was ongoing. So I do yeah. think that it is going to be about access. We need to think about these people who are probably going into sports um, to get away from other avenues of their life. And let's make the sports safer for those individuals as well. Um, because there are arguments to be made that removing contact from sports may actually improve performance, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about things like reaction time and, you know, developing other skills before putting contact into the game, you know, maybe we're then putting out greater players to have a better shot of, you know, going to college, going professional um, without putting them at risk for, you know, this exposure throughout their young career. Right. Right. And, and look, make, make no mistake about it. Um, Tom Brady and Lawrence Taylor did not play uh, football until high school. And they're, they're the greatest of all time at their position. So I think the argument is that you have to have that contact to be the best. Um, it's just, it's not validated in that these guys at the pinnacle, the, the peak of the career uh, didn't play. Um, and, and look, flag football is huge in, in my town. I mean, it's the biggest league, far bigger than, than Little League. So uh, I know the appeal is there as well. Um, you recognize that the CDC, as well as the NFL, acknowledge the causal relationships, but many organizations do not. And I know the NFL has, has been slow to get there, but they, they've, they've gotten there, or, or they are there. Uh, there is a fund and, and for those who, um, you know, of previous generations, but we don't need to get into details of that. I know there are some controversy about how those monies are being allocated, uh, but they're aware and they've acknowledged the 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 causation. As a matter of fact, if you look at training camp right now in the NFL, the linemen, I think, are wearing um, what look like rugby scrum caps over their helmets, at least through the first two weeks of practice. So that's some acknowledgement there uh, about the dangers of CTE. 
Uh, but let's talk. So you guys are making a point that, and you call them out by name, and I'll ask you to share some of the names. Who's not acknowledging the causal relationship? Um, who, who, who could be that amplifying voice, but isn't, or is resistant, or you know, who are those organizations? Yeah, I mean, I think you'd go for the big ones, you know, the NHL, um, FIFA, for arguably the, one of the largest <laughs> governing bodies in the world. We just see the number of people who play soccer or, you know, football, respectively, in other countries, World Rugby, the International Olympic Committee, you know, all very big governing bodies that are not acknowledging the causal link, um, which, you know, does a bit of a disservice to younger players because it's like how much information, again, our parents coaches, um, players actually getting when they're enrolling kids in these sports with the way they're traditionally played, um, you know, because it's really the youth level that we need to do these things. And even looking, you know, at the NFL, you know, they do have limits. The CFL also has limits on contact and practice. Um, but at that point, you're taking a very exposed group. And yes, you're reducing mm -hmm. their exposure, which is great because they are at high exposure. But what are we doing for, you know, five and six year olds who are being enrolled and are now looking to have, you know, upwards of 20 years, maybe more, depending on how long they play. Like I started playing hockey at four, played through mm -hmm. the NCAA, so I ended at 22. So that's 18 years of exposure I had just because I started hockey at four. And I played in boys leagues. I played in girls leagues. There's a lot of contact even without body checking. And I wasn't part of the generation where body checking um, was removed until Bantam age is what we call it mm -hmm. here in Canada. Yeah. So that you... 13 ish level. So think about all the people who would have gone through just that many years through college. And then you add on a professional career um, and the years really start adding up. It's just not really necessary um, to yeah. have five and six, even through, through 14 year olds hitting mm -hmm. their head over and over and over again. So what do you want these organizations to do? What are you calling on them to do? Yeah. I mean, the big thing is to, to acknowledge it, but it's really about making change. So at that youth level, below the age of 14, let's modify these games. I mean, hockey has done a great job. USA Hockey, Hockey Canada, they have modified the body checking level. So now you're doing it at an older age. The younger kids are not being exposed to, you know, body checks over and over again in practice. And we find it really is in practice that you're receiving the bulk of these impacts. Because when you think about a game, depending on how it's played, a 60 minute game, you're probably not on the ice of the field for the whole 60 minutes and receiving mm -hmm. contact. But in practice, you're getting those reps in. That's what we're doing it for. So something like soccer, let's stop heading the ball before the age of 14. You know, let's not have yeah. them do it. We can teach that skill later. Rugby, football, let's go to flag or touch models. You know, let's make these modifications so that these kids are not sustaining that impact. And then by the time they get to high school, if they would like to enroll in the full contact version of those sports, of course, that's at their discretion. But at that point, you've really limited their total career exposure. Like we found usually five years of exposure is kind of the minimum we look for in terms of CTE risk for a lot of the mm -hmm. research criteria. So if you think most people don't play past high school, you know, it's like that nice funnel where you have a large proportion at youth and you keep whittling it down until you get to the pro level. So by having them start in high school and end in high school for most people, they will never hit that five-year exposure. Five and of course, years. those who go into college and at the professional level will, but that's a much smaller proportion than we right. have now. Whereas people playing through high school could in theory have, you know, six, seven, eight, 10 years of exposure. Right. And in theory, 
that college kid, that um, pro, they know what they're in for. They know what the risks are. And I think the NFL, as an example, has been good in doing that. And I'm assuming every player signs a waiver at this point. Um, they've been better at it, but the NHL is not an, as an example, right? The NHL, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, has been sort of resistant, if not hostile to, to this issue. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, very resistant. Um, definitely hostile is a, a great word for it. Um, and I know, you know, there's players who are concerned, there's families who are concerned, and it's just something they're not at the point of acknowledging. And I mean, you have to think again, liability litigation like these are all factors that come into play yeah. but i mean these are also people's lives um, at stake so people do deserve to kind of know what they're in for at the same time right we'll talk a little bit about the liability in a second uh these entities the nhl uh the olympics fifa have you know amazing not just amazing hugely profitable relationships with the media uh, that's why their their voices are amplified. These individual players have huge amplified voices through their own platforms. Is um, and I know you guys have a program inside the CLF that educates broadcasters on how to speak about issues, not to use terms like "well, he got his bell rung" uh, mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, what is the role of the media here or what are you asking of these organizations that relates to their media contracts in terms of spreading the message or amplifying the message about the dangers? Yeah, I mean, the media project, great program. I think the, the biggest thing we want is just so that kids who are watching these sports growing up, like many do, and you hear a lot of the pros where they talk about, oh, I watched so-and-so growing up, they were my inspiration. Um, but when you hear, oh, like, what a great big hit, oh, he's down, like, minimizing these risks, then you're just instilling the culture that, you know, it's okay for someone to have a concussion, play through it, or get knocked out on the field, and then get back in, that's them being so tough. And it's really, it's dangerous, and not just for concussion and post-concussion, or, you know, CT, that separate issue of the repetitive head impacts, but even things as severe as second impact syndrome. So, Rowan Stringer in Ottawa, Ontario, a 17 year old rugby player who returned to play following two concussions and unfortunately died um, after the third in a, a high school rugby game, just mm. because they weren't aware of the risks. And these are things that broadcasters, just by talking about concussion protocols, why they're important, you know, about return to play, when they should be removed from play, not glorifying these big hits, like that can go a long way and instilling in these kids without even really them realizing it right, that this right. is a different culture than we were brought up with where everyone celebrated those big hits and someone getting knocked out was really cool not something that should be a co concern for people right right um you don't want the media to normalize um the behavior uh, on a player who just sucks it up and goes back into the game when the reality is that they're hurting and no, they're not bleeding from their nose or there isn't a you know, compound fracture. Um, we can't see these things, but it doesn't mean that they're not injured and it doesn't mean that they're not hurt. Um, so the media can go a long way on that. Um, the NFL, the NHL, big money, lots of revenue. Um, I have no doubt that they are dealing with the, the culpability or the liability issues. But organizations like Pop Warner and Youth Hockey, these aren't big money enterprises. Um, how, what's the liability for them if they're not um, 
attuned to this. Their coaches aren't talking about it. They're not handling players in the right way. Is there a real danger to these organizations if they don't um, understand what you're saying or in some ways uh, shape their, you know, their structures or their behaviors? Yeah, I think that's the conversation. This paper is really um, kind of getting out there where a lot of what I'm now seeing um, in the news releases and in what people are commenting is really, what does this mean for youth sporting organizations? Most of them are nonprofits. You think about Hockey Canada, nonprofit, you know, funded by um, the government and the same in the US and other countries. So, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but at the end of the day, we do need to think about if, you know, there is an awareness that an exposure can cause a disease and this is not acknowledged, you know, prior to going in, like, what does that liability look like? Does that affect insurance? Does that affect the future when they are no longer playing, you know, at that youth level? And maybe if they've moved on to the NCAA or, you know, youth sports or professional level, now who is, is liable? Is it, you know, everyone who is involved? And I think that is a lot of the discussion that's starting to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think it's just one of those things you need to consider where these big organizations have a lot of responsibility because they have influence. Um, so things like, you know, the NHL, the NFL have a lot of influence um, to get that message out. But the reality is if the changes are not happening at the youth level, they're still, you know, seeing massive exposure um, that we need to be doing something about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know HBO real sports a number of years ago did a story on, just how expensive it's becoming for the pop warners of the world to afford insurance on the liability. I do, I do fear for high schools in particular, um, how are they going to cover the insurance that's required? You know, school committees need to answer those questions if they're, if the insurance is going up and in some ways they're going to use the, the data that you guys have. And, and that's, you know, that's, but the, look, the, the CT is real. I, I certainly believe that. And I know your research says that so the the industry the sports industrial complex is going to need to get their heads around it because you just can't ignore it for the benefit um to the detriment of our of our players sam i want to thank you for your time i appreciate that like i said this is sort of a shark tank update here this is the first time we've gone back to someone we've talked to earlier and i did think that this would be the first one to be honest with you because i know that you guys are are doing really good work so i appreciate your time yeah thank you so much have a good one you're welcome. You're welcome. Well, before I sign off on here, let me say a brief word about Suffolk University. As Suffolk University at Suffolk University Sawyer Business School, you're steps away from life-changing internships, career connections, and Fortune 500 companies. Our classroom experiences are enhanced by our location. Being in the center of downtown Boston means you'll be right in the middle of innovation and the city's financial center. The Sawyer Business School offers both undergraduate programs and graduate business programs. You can choose full-time, part-time, online, Saturday, and summer courses. Enjoy small classes taught by professors who are bringing their expertise and experience to the classroom from right here in Boston, as well as across the country and around the world. Endless program and degree options are all here waiting for you. Take the next step today. Visit Suffolk. Dot edu. So this wasn't um, an emergency edition of the podcast, but it was something that was, uh, wasn't planned. This news came out, so I figured I would jump right at it. I've talked about this before. Um, I do have a son who, who wanted to play football as a youth, and I said, no, um, you can play in high school. Uh, but I did make the concession, or I thought rugby was a better choice. There was flag rugby, did end up playing middle school rugby. 
and it was co-ed, which is interesting on, on its own. Um, it did take contact, uh, didn't come out with a diagnosed concussion, but I know there was at least one knock, I think that uh, maybe, maybe it, it spooked him. And so it does happen. So, uh, but uh, it, this is an issue that I have tracked for quite some time. Uh, we started watching in my classes, um, the um, League of Denial uh, documentary that was put together. Um, I've read the book, uh, great, uh, great movie, a great book to read. And uh, the NFL has been, I, I, I think, sort of at the, the tipping point um, of the spear here on this issue. And they're further along in their acknowledgement than I think other leagues. One of the big issues here are players, current players, who, you know, many have, uh, may fear while they're still playing that they're suffering, but they're not willing to talk about it, rightfully so, because it's going to affect the amount of money that they might make in their next contract. What player is going to say uh, or agree to donate their brain um, once they pass to the Concussion Legacy Foundation? What player is going to come out and say that while they're playing? Because it signals that they think there's an issue and that will you know, dramatically affect the number of teams who might be interested in signing them. I get that. Um, they do need players, current players, to come out and be candid about it, but they're not at this point. And again, I certainly understand that. All right, so that's my um, that's my monologuing here. I think that's the first time I've really done monologuing outside of the the interview itself. And note to self, I've got to shorten my questions. I'm always too long with my questions, and I'm probably being too long here. Uh, but that's it for another episode of the Amplification Avenue podcast. Uh, do expect to have one more episode before the start of the fall semester in the fall. I'm expecting or thinking maybe one a month. Um, I'm trying to build out a calendar now, maybe one or two, but I want to make them uh, hopefully a little bit bigger, bigger guests and topics that are super uh, relevant and topical. But I want to thank you, our listeners, for taking in another episode of the podcast. Uh, the Sawyer Business School Amplification Avenue podcast presented by Suffolk University. Please look for future episodes of your on your favorite podcast app and be sure to subscribe, rate, and share. That is important. Um, as always, I look forward to talking to you and with you again in the near future.